Welcome to My American Melting Pot, the podcast where we have conversations about pop culture, parenting, and identity politics, all from a multicultural perspective. I'm your host, Lori L. Tharps. I'm an author, a journalist, a mother of three, and a self-proclaimed diversity diva. I'm really glad you're here because this conversation we're about to have is really important. On episode 11 of My American Melting Pot, we're going to dissect white supremacy. Even though this seems to be the buzzword for racial justice workers, I'm convinced a lot of people don't really understand what white supremacy really means, what it looks like in day-to-day life, and how people of color are fighting with their lives to dismantle it. Joining me to help deconstruct this insidious and pervasive problem are two super smart women who have just published an amazing new book called How We Fight White Supremacy, A Field Guide to Black Resistance. The book is comprehensive but accessible, heartbreaking, but also laugh-out-loud funny, which I totally wasn't expecting. Joining me in the studio today, we have Akiba Solomon and Kenria Rankin. Akiba is the senior editorial director of the daily news site Color Lines and an award-winning journalist and editor who frequently writes about culture, race, gender, and reproductive health. Kenria is the editorial director at Color Lines and an award-winning author, journalist, and editorial consultant. I'm really excited to talk to these brilliant Black women about how we fight white supremacy. But first, you know we have to take a break for a melting pot minute. Melting Pot community. For this episode of the Melting Pot Minute, we're going to do something a little bit different. I had the opportunity to become the media partner for a really exciting organization called the Five Shorts Project. The Five Shorts Project is an organization that puts filmmaking tools in the hands of diverse filmmakers. And with me today, we have Shamika Sawyer, who is the founder of the Five Shorts Project. Welcome to My American Melting Pot, Shamika. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, Shamika, can you tell me what is the Five Shorts Project? Sure. So the Five Shorts Project is a project that assists aspiring filmmakers with creating short films from development to distribution. So that means from writing the script all the way up to actually uh, having a premiere to showcase the films and the films air on television. That is so amazing. And I consider myself a storyteller, and I love the mission to get diverse stories out into the world. Why was it important for you to get diverse stories out into the world? Because I think it changes the narrative a lot. Within the past years, prior to, I want to say, 2000... 14. A lot of the stories were the same, and you saw the same types of actors and the same types of storylines. And I just wanted to create a platform where anyone's voice could be heard, and it can be heard via film. With that being said, you know, stepping away from stereotypical images of people of color and moving more into just people of color being people (laughs) and having actual stories that straight away from the mainstream and just showing that we're people <laughs> and we we are all different and we have funny stories and we have sad stories. We're three-dimensional. We're not just one-dimensional. We don't just fit into this small box. We have diverse stories that are great and should be shown to the communities. That's so exciting. And of course, that's why I wanted to be a media partner because I wanted to tell the world 
about this opportunity because anywhere and any way that people are empowering others to tell diverse stories is something I want to spread the news. And I also was just really excited about your red carpet premiere. So tell me about what's happening on April 27th here in Philadelphia for this red carpet premiere of your films. Sure. So this year is the fifth year of Five Shorts, which is awesome. And um, we're going to have our red carpet premiere at the Venice Island Performing Arts Center in Roxborough. The address is 7 Lock Street, Philadelphia, PA. And The great thing about this year, instead of it just being five shorts, we have 10 shorts this year. Why? Because when the submissions came in, I read 10 great scripts and I said, you know what? I cannot let these other five go. Let's just work with everyone. So it's called five shorts, but you actually get 10. Yes. (laughs) It's extra. I know. (laughs) (laughs) So, and what's great about that is... Also, I reached out to other uh, local filmmakers and creators here in Philadelphia, just a few, and I'm going to actually show their trailers for their works that they have completed. And I figured this would be a great way to like bridge us all together. I always like to use platforms that I'm able to provide as a way to also help promote other people who are doing similar things. Can you give us a little bit of a taste of what some of the shorts are about this year? Well, I can say they're very diverse in um, story format and the stories that they tell. So we have a film that's dealing with mental illness. We have domestic violence. We have a film that's dealing with race relations in a positive light. (laughs) And uh, we have a short documentary this year, which I was excited to get involved with because I never shot a short documentary. It's about race. It's also about learning who you are and DNA testing and how that impacts how you see yourself once you learn your family history and your background and where you come from. We get to see an individual actually talk about that whole story. So, Wow, yeah. that's a, that's a, that's a good mix. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. So can anybody come to the premiere? Sure. So anyone can come. The tickets are now $20 for general admission, $30 for VIP. And if you are a young adult, ages 17 down to children, you actually get to come for free. Nice. Yes. And the event you said, again, it's on April 27th. What time does it start? So the red carpet starts at 5 p.m. The films will start at 6 p.m. and the event ends at 9.30. We're going to have a Q&A session with the filmmakers as well. That's going to be moderated by uh, T.C. Caldwell, who's a pretty well-known actor here in Philadelphia. So, Of course, everybody's not going to be able to make it to the premiere, but this opportunity to become a filmmaker through your program... How would somebody get involved with Five Shorts if they wanted to? So you can reach out via email, info at fiveshorts.org. We have a website where you can sign up for a mailing list. is fiveshorts.org. And it's the number five in the word shorts, S-H-O-R-T-S dot org. You can reach us there. We're on Instagram at five underscore shorts. And we're on um, Facebook at the number five, I-V-E. Shorts, S-H-O-R-T-S. So any of those places you can reach out and I will definitely get back to you. And my last question, what do you get out of this? Because <sighs> it sounds like a lot of work. It is a lot of work, but I actually love what I do. I wouldn't change it for anything. I think for me, it's just helping others 
and helping others to bring their dreams into fruition, that's probably the most I get out of it. I've been asked a lot of times, like, why is it that you're working with other people instead of working on your own projects? I mean, I can work on my own projects, but I don't know. I guess I feel a sense of happiness when I can just help somebody else make something happen and show them, like, to never count themselves out, that you can do this. It may be a lot of work, but I'm here to help you through the process from beginning to end. So you're like a midwife for other people's stories. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you so much, Shamika, for being here. And for all of you who are in the Philadelphia area, please put April 27th on your calendars. Check out fiveshorts.org online. And, you know, if there's a film inside you that's waiting to get out, go sign up to be part of the next cohort. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you. And this has been a Melting Pot Minute. Welcome to My American Melting Pot, Akiva and Kenria. Thank you hey, for, having for having us. So first, I want to just put some facts out there so people understand what we're really talking about and what we're dealing with. So these are facts gleaned from Time magazine from March 2019. And Time says that hate crimes in the 30 largest American cities hit a decade high of over 2,000 crimes and that ideologically motivated murders by white supremacists increased in 2018 to 17 from 13 in 2017. Also, we know that a former FBI agent and a Homeland Security scholar said that white supremacy is no longer a movement on the fringes, but it is being globalized at a very rapid pace. And finally, that the number of hate groups in America is at the highest level they've ever been. So to kind of start this conversation, though, I feel like people confuse white supremacy, white nationalism, white supremacists, and then this term that I actually just heard or saw last night on Twitter, activist Brittany Packnett, she used this term white supremacy culture, which she says is a smog that we all breathe in and every kind of person can perpetuate it. So Akiba, I'm going to start with you. When you're talking about white supremacy, how do you define it? White supremacy is a system, it's an economic system, a political system, and a cultural system built on the subjugation of people who are not white. And so definitely white supremacy culture exists And the activities under white supremacy can include hate crimes and self-described white supremacists. And it also includes folks who live just within the system who don't consider themselves to be white supremacists or, you know, have a firm belief in diversity. But because this is a political and economic and cultural system, people exist under it, whether they agree with it or not. Kenria, do you feel like or do you come across this situation where If you try to talk about the problem of white supremacy, particularly with white people, their response is like, I'm not a white supremacist. I'm not a neo-Nazi. Like, what are you saying? Because this idea of white supremacy comes with this baggage of surely you're not calling me a Nazi. Yeah. I mean, I think in general, people tend to, one, 
most people don't even want to say white supremacy or white supremacists, right? Just like nobody ever really wants to say racism. We get racially tinged and racially charged and all of these things. But what it really comes down to is that most people tend to think about racism on an interpersonal level. And we know that racism comes, you know, it's structural, it's interpersonal, like it's got all these different levels. But most people, when they hear that, they take it very personally and they want to push it as far away from them as possible without acknowledging what Akiba just said, which is that this is a system. It doesn't have to do with you on an individual level unless you are carrying out individually racist acts. But I think people are super resistant to anything that makes them feel as if they are being anything less than loving to all of us who are around us. It's absolutely an issue we encounter. Yeah. So this is where I feel, um, you know, when we hear terms like white fragility, when we hear people not wanting to engage with this conversation, it's because they don't understand what white supremacy really is whether they want to or they don't want to, but I feel like they want to believe that it is just that violence or that is these white supremacist hate crimes, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you explain it to somebody, for the folks in the back, the folks who, you know, who don't want to engage with it because they don't want to, they don't see themselves as a violent person? How do you define it for, you know, the person who is troubled? Sure. I mean, First, I think, you know, we start with that definition that Akiba just gave. It's a system. It's cultural. It's economic. It's political. So they can see the full scope of it. Mm -hmm. And then we very often use the word hierarchy. So in this country, white supremacy, well, not just in this country, worldwide, white supremacy thrives on a hierarchy that places white, cisgender, heterosexual, Christian men at the top and everyone else is slotted down below according to the intersections that impact who they are, you know, and how they move through this world. And I think it helps when they can say, oh, okay, so I see who gets put placed at the top of this. And they, you know, maybe, maybe a white woman will say, okay, so I can understand that patriarchy is a thing and that I'm automatically lower in this hierarchy than a white man. And a Muslim man can say, oh, okay, Christianity is up here. So that's how I'm feeling these effects. And that's where that intersectionality comes in because we look at how all these things influence us and it helps people to be able to place themselves within that. And perhaps if they are open and they are actually interested, they can understand how the folks who have more of those things will be getting a greater impact from this system. I think it really helps definitely to contextualize, you know, how somebody fits into this question of white supremacy. And I do actually like that idea that, um, not a definition, but thinking of it as like this smog that we're all mm -hmm. living in, that it's so pervasive that people of color included, I'm just going to say black people, but people of yeah. color, people who are colored, people who are not white mm -hmm. can even believe and buy into a white supremacist culture. So, Akiba, what does white supremacy look like on a day-to-day -day level? And, I mean, I was thinking about, like, I mean, such basic, simple things, like if you are a Black woman, an uh, Asian woman, and you go to the store and you want to buy a baby doll for your child, mm -hmm. and they only have white ones. Mm -hmm. Like, that is white supremacy, yeah. is that I can't find a baby doll, a bra, a Band-Aid yeah. that fits my complexion or reflects my cultural identity. What do you think of when you say what does—and again, I'm thinking of, again, trying to show 
that this is pervasive mm-hmm. and it goes from structural, from, you know, institutions, but it's almost in the food we're eating. Yeah. yeah. Well, it is in the I food mean, yeah, we eat. I mean, yeah, it is in the food we're eating. I <laughs> Talk mean, to me. <laughs> I mean, one of the very tricky things about white supremacy is that it morphs into so many different shapes and it's a bunch of different things at one time. So you can have the mundane, which is, you know, the doll or being a black woman who's always followed around a store or, you know, being a black woman who people expect to not be in first class, even though she has a ticket, you know. White supremacy can also be people trying to enforce white supremacy in and of itself. So that's where you get, like, barbecue Becky. You know, you have these white, well, mainly white women. You have these white women. I'm going to pause you for a second. Just in case someone's listening and don't know who Barbecue Becky is, please tell us who a Barbecue Becky is. <laughs> Barbecue Becky. I can't remember her Real given name. name but, <laughs> but, um, but It wasn't Becky, just in case. Okay, go ahead. She was a woman in a California park who called the police on two black men who were barbecuing in the park. So they were just peacefully preparing tasty foods <laughs> they, as they are want to do and right. allowed to and, do. And that, and this park, you know, was, was regularly a site of barbecuing and, you know, family gatherings. And this woman just walked up and was like, you don't have a permit. You're not allowed to barbecue here. And they were like, what are you talking about? And she just stood there and she called the police and she waited for quite some time. It took the police some time to come And one of the black men called his wife, who happened to be white, and was like, if something happens to me, this is why. Because this woman called the police on us, and all we're doing is barbecuing. Now, a great sort of, I guess, response was, I think it was the following week, and this whole group of black people came, Mm -hmm. and they had a barbecue party in that park. And they celebrated, and it just, you know, it turned, I mean, it clearly is not humorous, but it turned into a celebration of resistance. So when I say, you know, a barbecue Becky, the idea that you get to enforce laws, whether they're actual laws or whether they're just things that you made up, that you get to enforce space, you get to enforce where people belong, that is like serious white supremacist behavior. And then, you know, so these are sort of mundane things. And then, of course, we have police violence against people of color, Black people in particular, because that's what we're talking about. We have the economic disparities. I mean, you know, the the huge wealth gap that we face. We have the legacy of enslavement and Jim Crow and the prison industrial complex. And so these factors determine the life and the livelihood of Black folks and also white folks who have benefited generation by generation from these systems that really are built on stolen labor. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what white supremacy looks like. That's what, yeah, it runs through my head. This is what white supremacy looks like, right? It looks like our culture. Mm -hmm. Yes. Like it looks like the inequities in our culture. Mm -hmm. Yes. Am I the only one who feels like, though, that we've only recently started calling it white supremacy. Like, I feel like the conversations about injustice and race and racism did not include white supremacy five years ago. I feel like I remember when I realized that it all fell under this one this thing called white supremacy. And mm. I am very guilty. I'm a college professor, right? 
every time a student asked me a question, there was a time I was like, white supremacy. I'm like, <laughs> the answer is pretty, they'd be like, but Professor Tharps, why? And I'd be like, white it's supremacy. pretty much white. And I wasn't being funny. I was like, actually, the answer is white supremacy. Yeah. I, perfect yeah. answer. But why do you think that we are now realizing or that this is now becoming more clear, at least in the racial justice community, social justice community, um, and even, you know, I love my student activists who are, you know, they love a new thing, you know, and they're like, hey, the patriarchy and whatever. But why now? Why are we able to talk about this now? Why are we able to isolate this thing now? Well, I think it's in part just because of scholars and thinkers and journalists and academics and folks who knew it but maybe didn't use it or started using it in their classrooms and realized that this is a thing. And I think it's also, so we started working on this book before the election, actually, but I do 100% know that the election of the 45th president really brought white supremacy out of the shadows, right? Like on the level of the folks who were out here carrying tiki torches and wearing their little button downs and um, like those folks. Um, And I think that it's becoming a little bit easier for folks to say the words. But we notice that even when we have events for the book that a lot of times folks still take a little pause before they say it. It still feels weird coming off their tongues, and we're saying it all day because it is. It's what we're living in. And if you can't name it, you can't fight it. But I think because so many more folks are being intentional about the ways that they fight, which is obviously what we're trying to help people do, that it's becoming a little bit easier for us to call it out. I mean, I also think, you know, I was raised Black nationalist, cultural nationalist mainly, and grew up on terms like white supremacy, And I remember, you know, in the 80s, if you said white supremacy, it's like everybody was passing out. Like it was a bit, no, but it was like a really, really, you know, charged, a charge. And it was a subversive act to use those words. I think part of this is just the expansion of communication. I mean, this usage of this phrase would not exist if social media didn't exist. Because once a group of people started to use it and people forwarded it, and then it just became normalized. So now, I mean, I think about, you know, with publishing, Teen Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, just read an article in Harper's Bazaar that talked about white supremacy. I mean, like you have these bastions of whiteness suddenly politicized in a very particular way, and they are engaging in this language. And I think it comes from the work that Kenria just mentioned, and also by the distribution method. What do you mean by the dis- and the distribution method? Meaning it's not stuck in the academy. So students can hear about white supremacy if, you know, again, they go on social media. They don't necessarily have to be in class to hear about it. You don't have to be watching, you know, I don't even know if this is a thing anymore, but primetime TV, you're going to hear white supremacists on Netflix or one of these outlets. And so I just think that there's more free communication, quote unquote free, but there's (laughs) there's more fluid communication now because of social media and like the Internet in general. And if you have enough people saying one thing, then it does become normalized in a way talking about white supremacy is people are having those conversations more now, but not everybody is having those conversations and not everybody is allowed to have those conversations. Where do you think that is still, where is it still problematic to bring up the term white supremacy? Yeah, well, I think it's most problematic in places that are steeped in it, right? The places that thrive on it, places where it's super hierarchical, even within the organization where white supremacist ideas are, you know, pervasive. 
And there are organizations that come in and do that kind of work. We work for Race 4, which publishes Color Lines, and they do training at the government levels. They actually have an entire arm of the organization that goes in and works with cities and works with folks to do that. But there has to be somebody in there who starts the conversation to be able to get to that point to even be able to bring someone in to do those kind of trainings. But it's absolutely, it's still a problem in corporate. It's still a problem everywhere. Like you said, it's a smog that we breathe. And we don't all have the freedom to be able to start those conversations because we have our personal things we have to worry about. Folks need to keep their jobs and you'd be able to have their health insurance and you'd be able to feed their children. And I think that one of the things that, you know, is important with us about this book is to show folks that there are a lot of different ways to fight. And so that may not look like being able to have that conversation at work, but maybe it looks like serving on the PTA and your child's school and having, you know, some hand in the curriculum choices and things like that. So we find our other ways to get in there. Do you think that black people and other people of color are resistant to talking about white supremacy? And if so, why would they be? I think that's really hard to say. I think it really does depend on quite a bit. I think, you know, language is one thing, immigration status, economic level. So I I wouldn't want to put people of color and Black people all in the same pot because I just feel like there's a real risk of generalizing. That said, the words white supremacy together are taboo. And you hear, I'll speak on Black folks who I um, interact with, You know, I still hear folks say, like, you know, I don't want to get racial. Like, you hear people say that. Or you'll hear people say, you know I'm pro-Black, right? So they sort of, like, do a disclaimer before they start to talk about it because they want to let you know where they fall because they don't want to start something, quote-unquote. So, you know, I've had people say, you know I'm a militant. Like, I know you're a militant. I know I'm a militant. And, And I'm just like, we don't need all that. Militant is great, but you don't have to be militant to say white supremacy or to talk about it as a system. Although, yes, it may be the exception to have that conversation. We need to have a serious, real, straight up conversation about this particular system that we all live under. So, yeah, I think there's some taboo, but I also I mean, I'd be interested in, you know, an academic study around this. I think that would give us a lot more answers. I mean, I do feel like there are certain black people, particularly who, quote unquote, have made it, who don't want to acknowledge or who, again, have so believed this idea of what is right, what is correct, what is powerful, what are the norms that we should be working towards. And they don't realize that they have been infected with white supremacy. Yeah. Because the problem is that we all have been infected with the same disease, right? So you do have to be open to the idea that the life you're living isn't necessarily a life of chance that things happen because we live under this system. That's right. And brings us back to that hierarchy, right, which also privileges people who have money. So, you know, if you feel like you were able to get a toehold above some other black folks because you were able to make some more money— And that looks like you aspiring to what is essentially whiteness, right? As you try to climb up that ladder of that hierarchy, it can lead you to believe (laughs) that you have somehow separated yourself from your people, right? Yeah, there was a quote in the book that Pastor Michael McBride wrote that really stuck out to me. And he said, I believe that this is the greatest task for faith leaders in this season to help individuals stop reaching for whiteness. Even white people have to stop reaching for whiteness. It's a creation we all have to resist. 
how do you interpret that reaching for whiteness? What does that mean? Well, I think it looks like that. It looks like trying to climb that ladder. And the unfortunate thing is it's not really a ladder. It's a pile of people. (laughs) And every time you take a step up, you're stepping on the head of somebody else. You know? Yeah, just to add on to that. I mean, I think this idea in America in particular about individual achievement, Mm -hmm. this idea that if you just work hard enough, if you prize family and you work really hard and you are virtuous and all of these things, then you are going to be able to succeed. And we know that that's a huge lie. But I think that it's a continual lie. You know, it's the bootstrapping lie of like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Or, you know, I've heard people say, like, we can't let the past determine what we do now. And it's like, well, I guess we shouldn't let it, quote unquote, but the past exists and it shapes the context through which we are living. So it is important, I think, for folks to understand that, you know, again, the system is rigged. And being like, you know, I worked really hard and I graduated at the top of my class and you know, I didn't complain. And, you know, all of these things, it's like, that's beautiful for you. But that does not alter the system of white supremacy. And in some ways, it can bolster it. Right. When I think about reaching for whiteness, I've done a lot of work on hair and on colorism. And I always, you know, I can bring everything back to hair and and colorism. But the idea of emulating whiteness, like reaching for this false sense of and and it's it's so much more than beauty right i don't mean this as a beauty question but like our entire cosmetic industry right the entire beauty industry the diet industry our fashion industry like everything is built on this idea of reaching towards this caucasian sensibility and this idea of success what does success look like again this reaching for whiteness even And I go back to like the 1800s when white women were dying from Mm. skin lightening. The people who were dying from skin lightening were like working class white women who didn't want Mm. to be mistaken for any type of black person. They could not. And they were putting arsenic on their skin to be as pale as the women who didn't have to work out Mm -hmm. in the fields. They were dying because they, too, were reaching for this manufactured ideal of what the proper white woman should look like. Right. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's an extreme example. But even white people need to stop reaching for this manufactured, which we know that whiteness is a manufactured concept meant to keep non-white people from getting to the top. Right. This is sort of an anecdote, I guess. Mm -hmm. We like anecdotes on this show. Please share it, Kiba. Anecdote time. (laughs) I, you know, um, I spent some time in mainstream publishing, and I remember there was a discussion about whether or not the audience was ready to embrace a lesbian couple. And one of the editors said, they're blonde enough that it'll be okay. Lord. And that was so deep to me because it was just like, well, they have their whiteness, and basically this is what we're upholding anyway. It's just like, let's think about this literally. Like, the color of your hair makes it okay that you're a lesbian. Like, what are we even doing? I, mm. it's, it's just, it's, I'm trying it's, to like, mm. but but white supremacy ties you in knots. Like, you say crazy things, mm-hmm. or you like to justify it, <laughs> right? Like, things don't go together, and you just if you sit back, and it can be crazy making because you're like, that is just 
nah, like, first of all, we shouldn't have a problem with the lesbian couple. And homophobia is one of the helpers of white supremacy, is one of the vectors. But aside from that, again, blonde enough? Like, who? <laughs> I won't say who says that because somebody said it. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the questions that I wanted to ask, which there might not be an answer, but do you guys think that white supremacy is a byproduct of racism or racism is a byproduct of white supremacy? I think racism is a byproduct of white supremacy. I mean, white supremacy, because it is a system, all of this stuff just slots into it. So as Akiba was just saying that homophobia is one of its helpers, racism is a helper, homophobia is a helper, transphobia is a helper, misogyny is a helper. I'm just getting this, like, image of, like, this evil white supremacist. With tentacles. And, and then he's got all these little helper elves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Somebody should draw this. I don't know. Anyone who's listening right now, I see a cartoon. It's white supremacy and these little helper elves. Yeah. Um, they help them knock people out of the box. Yeah. 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 It's all connected. So how is white supremacy? I mean, we know that white supremacy is a painful system to live under if you're not white. And I think most black people and other people of color recognize that pain. But I think what is more unknown is how is white supremacy bad for the whites? Right. Right? Yeah. Because so, it's not it's not just us that are suffering. Nope. Uh, so as we talked a little bit about, you know, white supremacy has all these little helpers, all the isms, as we call them, the homophobia and the colorism and, you know, all these things that play into it. And I think probably the best way for me to explain this is to read a little bit, if you don't mind. Go right ahead. So the um, Comahee River Collective, they wrote this black feminist statement back in 1977, and they talk about why black feminism is the key to our freedom. And it says, the most general statement of our politics at the present time would be that we are actively committed to struggling against racial, sexual, heterosexual, and class analysis and practice based upon the fact that the major systems of oppression are interlocking. We might use our position at the bottom to make a clear leap into revolutionary action. If black women were free, it would mean that everyone else would have to be free since our freedom would necessitate the destruction of all the systems of oppression. Yeah. If we are not free, then we are not all free. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the work that it takes to keep people oppressed Mm. is energy that could be used to be creating positive, uplifting, yeah, anything. It is. So it's funny. Well, anecdote time. My daughter is seven. We were sitting at the table a couple weeks ago, and she said, Mama, I just wish that we could get rid of white supremacy right now. We could be doing so many other things. That's the crux of it. We could all be directing our energy in so many other places. White supremacy is a liar. It is jealous. It is a distraction. It wants all of your energy. Imagine what we could be doing if we didn't have to do this, all of us. Because, again, it's not just a black fight. It's not just a people of color fight. It is an all of us fight because we all, all, you know, it's like when Obama used to always say rising tides lift all ships. Same thing. In particular for white people, I think classism is a huge ism. I think divestment from business and the deindustrialization in this country was bolstered by white supremacy because there are certain politicians who believe that the key to writing the system is to only address class. And we don't believe that to be true because class 
once again, we're talking about a hierarchy that depends on money, number one. But then number two, we're talking about the false promise of whiteness. Yes, exactly. Of something that does not even really exist. Right. And so, you know, if you can say my life is completely falling apart and I have gotten no breaks, you know, I can't get a job, I don't have health care, all of these things. And then you can say, but I'm white. Okay, well, now you're not actually dealing with what everybody's dealing with. You're dealing with, you know, again, a false promise. And I think that that's one one way that white supremacy works against white people. It's like white supremacy doesn't actually love you. I think that's really important, even if it puts you at the top of the hierarchy. It doesn't love you. You're not special. The problem is that you think that First of all, that there has to be a huge inequity in the system. And then you think, well, since there is, and that's a given, that I have to be at the top. And I think that is really damaging to most people. I mean, you know, most people are not at the top. Most people don't make $30 million a year. Most people won't go and talk to Kim Jong-un because they, you know, Now we're his best, we're best friends. Right, like, because they share, you know, a dictatorial idea of how the world should be. I mean, if we, you know, again, if we think about this as a system, we talk about anti-Semitism, right? I mean, white supremacy is hugely anti-Semitic. And a lot of the white supremacist violence and activity is both aimed at Jewish people, it's aimed at Islamic people and Arab people, it's aimed at Black people. Like, if you think about it, this system does not love, it doesn't love you. So you need to sit down and figure out where to find the love. It's not with the white supremacist movement, not at all. And that's, I feel like that's really important for everybody to understand that everybody has a stake in dismantling white supremacy. Everybody has much to gain Like, everybody has Mm -hmm. so much to gain. Even the people who are, like, deeply committed to their white supremacist lifestyle have much to gain. And so this fight has to be embraced by all people. So you guys wrote this wonderful book. The title alone tells us what it's about, how we fight white supremacy, a field guide to black resistance. So why did you write the book? What were you hoping to do with this book? The idea came, I was um, riding in the car, and I was listening to a podcast, and I was thinking about this, um, there's this Walt Whitman Songs of Myself poem, and in it he talks about how he contains multitudes, about how he may contradict himself at times, but the reality is he is one person with a whole lot within him. And I used to use that quote to like describe how I could dance on tables on Saturday and go to church on Sunday. And then I started using it to describe black people, right? And we were talking about a little bit earlier about how we're not all the same. Black folks are not a monolith. We love differently and different things and different people. You know, we eat different stuff. There's not just, you know, I don't eat watermelon. I've been teased <laughs> since I was a kid for not being black enough because I don't eat watermelon. It's fine. I'm not bitter. Kenria, I don't like watermelon. It's either. nasty. I, it has no flavor. It All has melon no, is gross to me. I just, I've never. Nope. It's fine. We're going to get hate it's mail. Okay. It's, it's okay. okay. We're not a monolith. I'm allergic to it. Are no you? No way. I am, yeah. I, I realized that because I kept trying to eat it and I was always really, really, really sick after I ate it. Oh, and it's no. because I'm allergic to it. Oh, Look at that. Look so at we this. have three, three, black pe- three black women in a room. Who don't eat are. watermelon. But shout to watermelon. I don't want us to be like the watermelon hate, the hate trio. I love a, I love I love the idea of watermelon. I love the color. 
Yeah. Yeah. watermelon. Beautiful. The colors are beautiful. I actually, my kitchen in my New York apartment was green and pink to kind of emulate the watermelon. Oh, that's cute. Okay. Yeah. Shout out to watermelon. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I love watermelon lip smacker. Okay, I'm done. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, so I was thinking about that and thinking about how we're all so different and thinking about how just as there are millions of us who are dealing with the ravages of white supremacy every day, that there are millions of ways for us to fight it, that we all have our own individual ways that work with our lives and with the way that we interact within the system that help us to move toward liberation. And that's really where the idea of the book came from. We wanted to collect all these different ways that people may not necessarily think of as being part of resistance. I think so often people think of picket lines and organizers and those kind of things as being the only ways to fight. But what we know is that there's so many ways. And so, you know, we have everything from a kid who started a book club because he read statistics that little black boys didn't read very often once they hit a certain age to, you know, folks who started a political action committee that supports progressive black candidates across the country. People who, you know, talk about how they are creating businesses that are specifically meant to bring money into black communities. And those are all different ways of resistance. And we wanted folks to be able to read these collected ways and also end the book, hopefully, with their own ways of fighting. Akiba, can you tell me what kind of, what's the format of the book and how did you put it together? So we call this book a multidisciplinary curated collection of work. What does that mean? It means that we don't just have essays or even writing. We have fine art, we have comics, we have poems, we have photos, And even within writing, we have Q&As, questions and answers. We have as told to's where folks talk to us and then we put it together as a story. And then we have traditional essays. And so and then we have the quotes also from folks who we ask, how do you fight white supremacy? And they answered, I fight white supremacy by dot, dot, dot. And so the reason why we wanted it to be multidisciplinary is because we wanted a series of on ramps to this book and we wanted to make it accessible. Some people are going to respond to a comic Some people are going to love, you know, a five-page essay, but we didn't want to just limit it to folks who were into sitting down and reading a very standard set of writing. I think that's why, again, I felt like it was so engaging and so accessible because, I mean, I like all of those things, but it just, it made it easier to read because it wasn't so dense, you know, text, 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 text. Mm -hmm. And also you really got to feel like you got to know a lot of different people. Like I learned about this comic. I learned about this minister. I learned about this illustrator. And that's, again, I think what's why I was able to like devour the whole book in 36 hours. Um, Even if I wasn't on deadline for this show, I think I would have read it that fast anyway, because it was always like, it was like a, it was like a well-curated meal. There was an appetizer. There were multiple, you know, side dishes. Um, And I felt really satisfied at the end. Okay. Yeah, I'm so good. Good on you both. Thank you. But, Akiba, people think resistance and fighting white supremacy is going to involve picket signs, tear gas. Talk to me about what resistance can Um, or how people should approach resisting white supremacy so that they don't lose their lives or their minds. Hmm. Okay, that's a doozy. Um, (laughs) Just just in a a quick sentence. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, I think that there are different tools and different ingredients in liberation practice. So I definitely think community organizing, grassroots organizing is important. I think 
rallies and um, demonstrations, I think they're important, too, because they unite people. And also, visually, it lets people know that there are a bunch of people who believe a particular thing. That said, you know, number one, it would be incredibly ableist to say that you have to do these activities to be resisting. Mm -hmm. Some people just can't. Some people don't want to. And I wouldn't discount. So, like, I'm actually, you know, pro-rally. You know, I come from a, a rally household. But that's no more radical than the example that Kenria used, which is creating a business that brings money into the Black community very specifically. Or, you know, what you cited with Michael McBride, where he's literally using faith to vanquish white supremacy, which really, if you think about it, should be the opposite of God, mm. right? And so, you know, you can affect people and you don't, I don't think, again, you don't need to be tear gassed. I mean, if you are. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you know, and that that is necessary. I don't think we can ever say that we'll never march again because it's just one of the ways that we demonstrate. But we have a rich history of resisting on so many different levels, too. I mean, if you think about us as enslaved people, we couldn't go to rallies, but we got free. Mm -hmm. I think what I loved about the book, which was so great, is the variety of voices that you brought in and perspectives. I remember Penny Wren, um, who is a <laughs> black woman. Penny. Sorry. Hey, Penny. Hey, Penny. Um, who is a black woman living in um, Lancaster. Lancaster, Pennsylvania, who said her resistance is just taking her black self out into this very white world that mm -hmm. she lives in. Lancaster, Pennsylvania is a very white community. And she's like, I just put my music up loud and I don't apologize for that. Um, you know, you had quotes from mothers who said, I resist white supremacy by teaching my children to be proud of their blackness. Mm -hmm. So there were just so many different ways. That's what I guess was so inspiring because I feel like a lot of times when we're talking about social justice work, you walk away thinking there's so much to do. I couldn't possibly do it. What is my one contribution going to be? And in this book, I was like, oh, I can do this. I can do this. I was like, <laughs> dinner time conversation. I was like, let's talk about how great it is to be black, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And it also reinforced some things that, personally I was doing, but also gave me ideas about other things to do. There was one other quote in the book, uh, photographer Delphine Adama Rafawanda. Yeah. Yes. She said, the goal of white supremacy is to make people feel less than human, to dehumanize us. Mm -hmm. So to fight it would be to accept your humanity and to glorify it, right. right? And live mm -hmm. into it fully. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right. So do you two have a story from the book that particularly inspired you or maybe even surprised you in how somebody was kind of living their own version of fighting white supremacy? Hmm. I mean, I will say I really was inspired. I mean, this is going to sound like I'm being political, but everybody that's in the book is so dope. Like, we have 71 contributors, and then we also have another, like, 20 people who are quote-unquote everyday people who we talk to about the ways that they fight. And every one of them just made me—it reinforced why this book was so important to be able to get it from a lot of different areas. So I don't have a favorite piece, but I do have a favorite line. Mm -hmm. And it's from Hanif Abdurraqib's piece. It's a poem, and it's called A Poem in Which No Black People Are Dead. And there's this one line, he says, for Ms. Rose, who put her foot in some fried chicken once and they never pulled it out. 
And I just, I don't even eat chicken. <laughs> but, like, but like that line, it just, it made me think of like my auntie Mamie in the kitchen in Cleveland when I was growing up, frying chicken for all the kids. Like we would gather at her house every weekend. And so I come from a huge family. My father's the youngest of 15 kids. Yeah, um, we from Greenwood, Mississippi. And so, <laughs> and so everybody would come to the house on the weekend, and we would be outside playing with no shoes on, and all the adults would be on the porch playing bed with, and she would be frying chicken, and we would all come in and get a paper towel and get some chicken and run back outside with it. And it just, the imagery that that invokes and the feeling that it gives me has stuck with me ever since he first submitted the poem. Mm. So much of this book is a love letter and the celebration of Black people, and that line encapsulates that for me. What about you, Akiba? So, you know, I, too, see all of the contributions on the same level. I think one of the things that we tried to do was to really make it a collective thing. One story, though, by Naya Kenny. I think she's about 20 now, but maybe five years back, she was in her classroom in South Carolina— and there was a girl, another black girl, who was on her phone. And so the teacher told her to get off the phone and she wouldn't get off the phone or she didn't get off the phone. She wasn't like, no, I won't get off the phone. She just continued to use the phone. Anyway, this escalated into a police resource. School resource school officer. School resource officer, a.k.a. A pol- police. Pol- <laughs> police in school, coming to the class And literally picking up this girl while she was still in her desk and slamming her on the floor. And so Naya jumped up and she recorded this assault and she actually stood up for this girl and she was the only person who did that. There were other adults in the room. Nobody did anything. And so what Naya says in the book is, you know, I I was an accidental activist. I didn't go to school that day planning to help defend and protect one of my classmates. It just happened. And Naya faced charges herself for, I think it was disturbing the school. And then also, you know, Naya the whole time was thinking, my mother's going to kill me. So that was so utterly human and so real, right? Like you're a teenager. You are now an activist. You are protecting somebody. But you're also scared that your mom's going to be like, what did you do? But, you know, Naya now is an activist. She ended up working with Kimberly Crenshaw at African American Policy Institute. And where is she now? I think she's... She's she's been doing that. She's still working with Kimberly in New York. And she's also um, suing via the ACLU. She's suing the system in order to get that disturbing the school's law off the books because it's used to criminalize kids. You know, we talk about the school-to-prison pipeline, and it's a major... Disturbing schools is a huge part of getting kids into prisons, and that's still because... Teachers can say, oh, you're chewing gum, you're disturbing the classroom, and they can have you arrested, and then you can have a charge, and you can end up in jail instead of in class. That is crazy. Yeah. It's absolutely crazy. So um, what do you two think? I know this is this is a big question, and it's a little bit fantasy, but what do you think the world would look like without white supremacy? And again, I take it all, I can't help it, but I take it back to hair. Mm. And I'm like, well, we wouldn't have like hair texture hierarchies. We wouldn't have, you know, certain types of like makeup and, Mm -hmm. you know, like this, the whole industries would disappear, right? What would society look like if white supremacy was 
just something poof. of the past. Yeah. Yeah. So in the last chapter of the book, it's about freedom dreaming. We specifically task everyone who's in it and everyone who's reading it to reimagine what this world looks like because it's when we are stuck in the day-to-day of fighting white supremacy, which sometimes just looks like getting out of bed, it's really hard to avoid the distraction of that in order to think about the future, but we can't get to the future if we can't envision it. And so in every chapter as well, Akiba and I write essays to answer a certain questions. And so we talk a bit about this. And for me, what it looks like is being able to bring my whole self to the table everywhere I go, not having to worry about the white gaze and the danger that it can quite frankly bring to me, being able to to be as free in my life as I am in my text conversations with my closest girlfriends, where, you know, I don't feel as if I have to justify my place at the table. I don't feel as if I have to censor myself. I don't feel as if I have to put a bushel basket over my brilliance, which very often is a thing that black women have to deal with, that I just get to be me all the time and not question whether or not I belong there. There's no imposter syndrome when white supremacy is gone. Isn't that amazing? I mean, like, I feel like I'm very lucky that I lived, I had a very privileged life in terms of my education, in terms of my, you know, I grew up in safe neighborhoods and things like that. But probably because I grew up in all white spaces mm. for the most part, and I've worked in mostly white spaces, there's never a moment when I'm not aware that I'm a black woman, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times I operate in life pretty positive, pretty clear that whatever I do is going to, it's going to be great, It's going to be fine. I have the power. I have the networks. I have whatever I need. And then when something bad happens and it is clearly because I am black, it kills me, Mm. right? I feel like I'm less prepared for it. But because, again, I feel like I'm, I'm so close to so many white people, I wonder what must it feel like to... No, you didn't get that simply because you just didn't deserve it. Yeah, the privilege that's in that. That's, I just, like, what does that, I don't know what that feels like. And that's what the world, without white supremacy, where, or where, as a mother, mm. I don't have to tell, oh, my God, I would never have to worry about my son. hmm I don't know. That would be amazing. hmm Wow. That's what's at stake here. Yeah. But you don't, like, I don't ever think, like, oh, that could happen. I just know that it's not, that's not the world we live in. Yeah, I mean, the idea that we don't have to die because we're Black. Literally. Like, we don't have to think about all of the different ways in which people are trying to kill us. That is freedom. The idea that we can have a home in safety. We can have adequate food. We don't have to worry about whether or not we pull out our uh, driver's license the right way, quote-unquote. We don't have to worry about being fired because we say, don't touch my hair, or because we have natural hair to begin with. That we have free access to education and that the education system some of it isn't in place to tell us that we are nothing. I mean, to be unfettered and to be able to live, like I, I, like you said, it really is a lot of times a question of living. And as much as we don't run around every day thinking, I'm about to die, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, no, no. but it is in the back of your mind. I mean, mm-hmm. I think about my nephews and I'm like, you know what? 
God forbid. But, you know, the idea that, like, you have to walk around in the world and think that somebody might kill you or your loved ones or your family because they're not white is bizarre. And I think, you know, a freedom dream is just that. Like, take away that fundamental threat. And that's one way that we can start to build. Right, right. No, and, and I think oftentimes it really is sitting there. Like, like this just happened a couple of weeks ago where I was about to get over and there were no cars around that I could see. And I almost didn't signal. And then I thought about Sandra Bland. Mm-hmm. And then I hit my signal. Mm-hmm. Like, I legit think of her anytime I think of taking any kind of liberty or privilege because I could very easily end up in a cell. With yeah, a like, garbage bag around my neck. Yeah, I mean, when I'm in a store and I pick up a small object, I hold it up. Like, I walk around yes, in the store. No hands in your pockets. No hands in my pockets. If I go in my purse for my phone, I very theatrically put the item down, go in the phone, pick the phone up, show the phone. I mean, that is crazy making. Like, you're there to take my money, right? Like, I'm giving you my money. And I have to worry about whether or not you're going to criminalize me and something horrible is going to happen because you decided not only that I'm going to steal, but also that theft is punishable by death. That that piece of gum, that little pack of mints is worth more than your life. Right. Or the ego of a cop in the case of Sandra Bland. Right. Like he didn't like what she said. That is not punishable by death. What that you just say or how you say it should not be punishable by death, but it is. And if it's not just physical death, it's ruin, it's depression, it is PTSD, PTSD, yes, trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a system that is here to make us afraid. And we're not wrong to be afraid. Right, right. Because we see what can happen. And it thrives on dehumanizing us. So at the point that those things are more valuable than our lives... It's just a tangible reinforcement of the fact that we are not seen as human. This was um, Imani Perry's quote, knowing it is good to be black, even when it is terrible to be black, Mm -hmm. is at the core of how we fight. Love that. And that is exactly it. And I'm, a, you know, again, I mentioned that I was um, raised in mostly white space. They were all white. I'm like, I don't know what to say mostly white. They were white spaces. Well, you were there. (laughs) You were there. Plus me. (laughs) But um, it was interesting because I never ever wanted to be white like a mm-hmm. lot of times you read about kids who grip on white spaces and you know they would put the towel on their hair and be like oh my hair is yeah. smooth or um i never wanted to be white like that was never the dream i just wanted more black people mm-hmm. that was that mm-hmm. was what i wanted i never got the idea that white people were superior mm-hmm. i never got the idea that i should feel inferior mm-hmm. um I have a very inflated sense of self, (laughs) a very high self-confidence. But again, that chafes really hard when you realize that the system doesn't think the same way of you. But that's why I love Imani Perry's quote there that knowing it's good to be black, Mm -hmm. even when society doesn't reflect that back to you. So I want to ask you guys, as I'm, you know, wiping the tears from my eyes, there's a chapter, Laugh or you'll cry. Laugh to keep <laughs> laugh to keep from, from crying. crying. But that too. <laughs> Talk to me, Akiva, about laughter. Talk to me why laughter is a form of resistance. And by the way, I just want you to know I did not steal this from your book, but I am introducing a new segment on the podcast. It'll be starting next uh, episode that is going to be called Laugh or You'll Cry. Oh, um, yeah. That we will be talking about stuff that 
you know, if you didn't laugh about it, it. you'd be crying. So talk to me about laughter as a form of resistance. I mean, laughter is so important because it can be subversive. We have an excerpt of a letter from a formerly enslaved black man, Jordan Anderson, whose bastard, quote unquote, you know, after the Civil War, wrote him and asked him to come back and that he and his wife could come back and continue to work. And Jordan Anderson wrote the most, like, this was the most sarcastic, Mm -hmm. hilarious letter I think I've ever read in my life. And one thing he said is, you know, thank you so much for the offer, although you did shoot me twice. (laughs) um, I know you didn't mean it. (laughs) We will consider coming back there if you give us our back wages which equal, and he, mm-hmm. he, he, he broke it he down broke for it him down. and his he wife. He was like, with with interest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's like, I think his wife's name was Mandy. Mandy, you know, she's concerned about some of it. So it was like, he couldn't, in that time period, he couldn't tell him something else that mm-hmm. where I'm not going to say on the mic. Mm-hmm. But he used humor. I mean, it was it was biting. It was hilarious. And it's just like, the idea that you can be this enslaved man who gets from underneath that particular part of slavery and you still can like clown the person (laughs) (laughs) that used to have dominion over your life like that is power to me you know a lot of our culture is passed through our humor and a lot of it i think is is also laughing just in general as as human beings it's a healthy thing to do it's a really essential thing to do because, it, you know, it lifts your spirit for a moment in time. So that's what I think about laughter. Kenria, do you think laughter or humor can be weaponized, like, as a real tool and not just, like, as a coping mechanism? Yeah, I mean, I think it can. So we actually have a, a satirical uh, story from Kiesi Lehman in the book, <laughs> and it's, it's called I Love My Dad. And I don't want to tell y'all who my dad is, but (laughs) he, to great effect, talks about a political figure in this country who aspires to whiteness but is not white and guesses at his motivations as to how he may, you know, what his thought process may be as he climbs that ladder of whiteness and how it impacts the people who look like us as he goes. And it is absolutely a weapon. (laughs) <laughs> There's no way to get through this piece and not be like, oh, he killed him. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's pretty amazing to see. And it's funny. So like I said, I thought your book was funny. Not the whole thing wasn't, you know, chuckle fest. But, um, <laughs> but I just really appreciated how uplifting it was, how it was funny. There were, both of you guys write really biting, funny, but really important work. Thank you. Can um, I'm still thinking of your version of God as a... As a <laughs> it's yeah. my homeboy. Yeah. He got a big afro. <laughs> afro. He talked to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to your God at the gym. <laughs> I was like, okay, God with the afro, help me with this, lift this weight. Yes. Um, it's like our version of little sweet baby Jesus in the manger. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. So my final question is literally a question as a writer, as someone who knows the publishing industry. How did you get this book published Girl. with the white publisher? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, did nobody check what you were writing? Yo. So, yeah. yeah. Do you, you wanna, yeah. <laughs> okay. So. I was like, this is a shit, right? <laughs> 
Plus, it's, it's, na- bold it's nation. Type. It's nation books. We started that is now yeah. bold type books, but yeah, our agent Tanya McKinnon, shout, shout out to Tanya, Tanya. helped us refine our proposal, and she pitched the book all over the place, and she got a bunch of no's. Go ahead. Who do we start with, though? Who do we start with? We started with a lot of folks who unfortunately were not empowered enough within their organizations to be able to tackle a topic such as this. I mean, since you brought it up, many of whom were skin folk. Yeah. So And we don't blame by them. By that you mean black people. Black folks. Yes, black, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, who, black people who who for whatever reason, you yeah. know, part of a major part of this book is talking about microaggressions in the workplace. And I can't imagine being like the only black person there who has to work on this book and publish this book, edit this book, and have to be both in that position and also editing it. Like all the ridiculous questions and all of like the repercussions and retribution. But we landed at Nation Books, which was a subsidiary of the Nation magazine. And they just let us live. Like there was no point that they were like, you know, you can't say this or yeah. you can't say that. Like, we were so comfortable. Yeah, they understood from the very beginning. There was very little convincing that we had to do for them to understand why this was important. And they were never afraid of using the word white supremacy. So, like, Akiba and I were like, if anyone won't let us say white supremacy in the title, then we're not selling a book to them. Like, that was hard and fast for us that that had to be in the title because otherwise you lose the impact of the work. There was never a question about us having that in there. They never tried to make us add explanatory commas where we explain black stuff to people. None of that. They just were super supportive and have never been afraid of this project. And I I want to shout out our editor, Katie yeah. O'Donnell, because Katie— I'm guessing Katie O'Donnell is not black. She is not. No, she is not But black. she is not scared. <laughs> but she's not scared. She's—you um, know, I think some of it is also just about being a good editor— or being a quality writer. You have to be able to recognize quality when you see it, whether or not it makes you afraid. And so while we were disappointed that we didn't place the book with some others, this was definitely the best situation that we could have been in. Absolutely. And she is a white woman. And, you know, people talk all the time about allies. And that's not really a word that I love. I feel like it's a fight that we're all in. You're not helping us. You know, fighting white supremacy helps all of us. But the idea of using your privilege to advance the fight is really key. And that's what Katie did here. And what's been the response to the book so far? It's been great. Yeah. We've been, we've we been on the road. We keep selling, selling out. out books everywhere we go. When we sign, you know, like people come up to us like, well, we just want to meet you because there's no more books left. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and people will come to a reading and buy three. Mm-hmm. You know, I we get all kinds of text messages and social media posts from our friends posing with the book. And random people we don't know, random which we, people, who we love. Like we, People are really into it. People have thanked us a great deal. And, you know, I believe them. Somebody cried at the launch. Yeah. Like, so- I had to get up and give her a hug. She was just like... You don't understand how much this means to me. And you show me that this kind of work is something that we can do, that we don't have to only do work. You know, they apply to the quote unquote mainstream. And, you know, there were tears. It's been amazing. Have you gotten feedback from, and I'm making an assumption, but are you getting feedback from non-Black people who are reading this work? And what has their feedback been? I keep getting a lot of folks on Twitter just saying thank you for doing this, like that it gives them 
a way into the conversation. It gives them language that they don't have. And one thing that we're really big on is not making black folks do labor for you. So it allows them to get the information without having to ask a black person directly. (laughs) So you can pick up the book and then you can just read it there. Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) Excellent. Well, thank you both for being on My American Melting Pot. Before I let you go, though, can you please both tell everybody how they can keep in touch with you and find out where you're going to be? I know you guys are continuing to tour with the book. So how can they find out where you'll be when they can find you? And also just, again, keep up with your writing in general. So can we all start with you? So I am Kenria on all of the social media platforms. It's the benefit of having a name no one else has. So (laughs) it's at K-E-N-R-Y-A everywhere. Akiba will give you her tags. The best way to follow our tour is to either go to Hachette's website or to go to Kenria.com slash events. And we have everything listed there. And Akiba? So I'm on Twitter. I'm I'm there. It's a little (laughs) nominal, but I'm there. But you can follow me at, at Akiba Solomon. That's the main. I'm I'm not an Instagram person. I know I'm supposed to be, but I'm really bad at it. Um, I'm on Facebook and have a wide community, but it is curated because I don't want to end up on 4chan and have a bunch of people coming on my page acting crazy. So the best way to keep up is on Twitter at Akiba Solomon, but also I have a new website called AkibaSolomon.com. It still has a few kinks in it. So, you know, I haven't been going around telling people to go to it, but it is there and it does have the schedule and some other details. So, yes, AkibaSolomon.com. Excellent. I'll have links on the My American Melting Pod blog, which will link to all of your handles and your websites and so people can follow you because everybody needs to go buy this book. I'm telling you, just go buy it. You will not be mad at me for telling you this. It's paperback, so it's affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, on purpose, buy one for yourself and one for your best friend and your mama. It's that good. It really is. Thank you both for being here. Thank you so much Thank for having you. us. We this was awesome. It. it was great. Wow. Who knew a conversation about white supremacy could make me laugh and cry and find fellow Black people who don't like watermelon? In all seriousness, though, this was a doozy of a conversation. And it really was an important one to have, one everybody should be having. If we can't talk openly about the white supremacy smog that we're all living in, then we're never going to progress as a society. And I'm not just talking about Black people or people of color. None of us are free if we're living in a world that is based on a false hierarchy that privileges something as random as the amount of melanin in our bodies. White supremacy is a lie, a hoax, a falsehood, and an untruth. And the sooner we all recognize that, the sooner our freedom dreams can become reality. Thank you for listening to episode 11 of My American Melting Pot. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you did, tell somebody. Tell your best friend. Go right up to them and say, hey, I just listened to this dope, super cool, awesome podcast called My American Melting Pot. You should listen to it too. I know you'll love it. If you don't have any friends that you can tell that to, then just leave us a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Before you go, I have one more thing to tell you. We're about to launch the My American Melting Pot Book Club, a virtual book club where we're going to be reading the works of diverse authors who tell stories that explore multicultural connections. Anyone can join because it's a virtual book club. 
But we're also going to have some live events, our authors will appear on this podcast, and we might give away a book or two. To find out more about the book club, please sign up for the My American Melting Pot newsletter. How do I do that, you're wondering? Just go to MyAmericanMeltingPot.com and you'll see the newsletter sign up on the right-hand side of the blog. And while you're there, check out all the fresh new content and links for our social media handles. Thank you. Episode 11 of My American Melting Pot was recorded at WRTI Studios in Philadelphia. Our producer and editor is Brad Linder. Our sound engineers are Tyler McClure, Joe Patty, and Paul Marchesani. Our publicity and marketing guru is Darian Muka. And our theme music was composed by Sumi Tanoka. Thank you so much for listening. And always remember to live your life in color. 